So, in the early church, there were lots of different variations here, and this is where I wanted to get to. Okay. <clears throat> There's a couple of people uh, who are very important. The early church had variation in it, just like the modern church. This idea that there was a golden age where everything was absolutely identical and the church is, well, a myth. Okay. <laughs> um, Amongst what are called the fathers of the church, meaning primarily the first 300 years of church history, um, before the church became legal, there were variations in the way that they interpreted some of the more obscure passages of scripture. Um, it didn't disqualify you as to be a father of the church or a mother of the church if you had an eccentric interpretation of one passage. Um, if you had consistently eccentric interpretations, they would tend to like, oh, they were a little off. We don't pay that much attention to them. But to be off on one or two points was not that, not, not that critical. Um, but the church did come together and compare the memories of all of the apostles um, because remember, early on, the, ba the teachings are based not on what we would call the New Testament, because there is no New Testament at first. Okay, they, the church starts over, you know, down here in Judea, right? Here's Pentecost Sunday, fifty days after Jesus' resurrection, um, and so the church explodes not just this way, but that way too, over towards India and down through uh, northern Africa. Um, so. The diff the, of the original uh, 12, they all headed different directions. Now, we don't have scripture recording for us where they went. Um, we do have fairly reliable oral tradition about most of them, about what happened to them. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, if, if you, especially uh, you, Dave, coming from... Uh, from overseas, probably grew up seeing a lot of the apostles' symbols in the churches you grew up going to. So, of course, being from Scotland, St. Andrews in particular. Um, so, uh, and all those symbols are related to the ways in which they died, okay? Um, or, the, or their profession as, as they were alive. So, um, of course, both Peter and Paul are martyred over here in Rome. Okay, so they both make it that far. Uh, Peter is crucified upside down. Uh, Paul is executed the clean way. He gets beheaded because he's a Roman citizen, which Peter is not. Um, you can't crucify a Roman citizen. It's too ghastly. It was considered such a horrible form of execution. So only non-citizens of the Roman Empire could be killed. That way. He was, so he was killed very cleanly. Um, other... other um, Apostles were killed in different places. Thomas would be way over that direction in India, um, <clears throat> on the west side of India. Um, the one apostle who lives to old age is the Apostle John. And 
the tradition is that he dies in Ephesus. Okay, and not just a tradition, but for hundreds of years, Christians visited his burial mound. Okay, so it was not. It's a very well attested tradition. Um, both John and the Virgin Mary would have died in Ephesus. Okay, because of course, from the cross, Jesus gives Mary into. John's custody to care for her um, because women had no way of earning a living in the ancient world for the most part. Um, so uh, he put, gives her to, to him to care for. So Mary lives in John's house until uh, they eventually, both of them, die in Ephesus. So this area where Ephesus is, and you'll recognize a lot of these. Do you recognize that these are the, the churches? that not only appear in the New Testament, but some of the cities, some of the, the churches that appear in our beginning of our book here. What we call Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Okay, so here's Lystra, Perga. Here's Colossae, like the book of Colossians. Laodicea, like we saw at the beginning of um, the book of Revelation. Philadelphia, Sardis, uh, Smyrna, Theatra, Pergamum. Here you have all these cities, okay? So... Um, when, uh, when John receives this revelation, he's here on this prisoner island called Patmos. Okay. Um, and the opening chapters are all messages for the churches over on the mainland. Okay. So, let's look at what happened here in the period of, of the interpretation of this book. So this book is written in all likelihood, if it's the Apostle John who wrote it, and I do accept that thesis, um, it was written a little before his gospel, okay, and is disseminated out to at least the seven churches that had messages to receive directly from it, okay? So, early on, uh, the Apostle John, of course, is the only apostle who dies of old age. He has a spiritual son. A young man from his congregation grows up to be a very important pastor named Polycarp. Um, Polycarp dies as a martyr, also, after being the Bishop of Smyrna, right up there just above Ephesus. Um, seems to die, if I remember right, I think it's 83 years old. Um, and we only know that from his attestation, from his, uh, as he... Uh, he, the court records, essentially, as he was being tried for being, a pay, uh, for being an atheist because he would not worship the emperor. <laughs> um, he, he's, uh, he's, he's tried for atheism. Um, i got to love this guy. He, he turns around and looks at the entire gathered crowd and says, No, you are the atheist. <laughs> but we know he's 83 because he says, three and, uh, Four score and three years I have served him and he has done me no harm. I will, I will not turn on him now and, or turn my back on him now. So, um, Well, he also has a spiritual son, a young man of his his congregation goes on to be the most important um, early theologian of the church, a guy named Irenaeus. Um, so he's, a, if you want to say it this way, he's John's spiritual grandson. He's, he's the next one along there. Um, both he and another guy from the same area named Justin, who is usually called Justin Martyr or Justin the Apologist. He was one of the first to try using Greek philosophy to explain what Christians believed to non-Christians. Um, uh, they both interpreted this thousand-year period literally um, based on prophecy in Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. They interpreted it as a final period of earthly history, and they interpreted it as going to happen sometime in the future. Now, the church will get together in 325. 325 through 327. Now, I want you to notice both Irenaeus and... Um, 
Justin are from this area of the world. Okay? But remember, how many apostles end up up here? Well, Paul, who didn't know Jesus during his earthly life, and John. Okay? Now, John, that's, that's not something to sneeze at, but there's other apostles have spread out, so other memories of the church are, are being held elsewhere. So in 325, when all of them come together, and I'm going to guess they don't have Nicaea marked on here. Does anybody see Nicaea? Be up here? See Thessalonica, Nicopolis, Corinth. Uh, I guess they didn't put it on this map. Um, anyway, uh, at the Council of Nicaea, which we get our Nicene Creed from, they got together and compared all their memories about Jesus' teaching as it had been passed down through each of the apostles. Now, by this time, there's Scripture. By this time, there's New Testament, okay? What we call the New Testament. As they enter it, about 90% of the bishops are holding on to a heresy that gets refuted by turning to what we call the New Testament, the Scriptures. It takes them three years of debate to settle on this. But they, in the end, settle on, this, on the Nicene Creed as a statement of what the apostles taught. They compared all their memories, they compared it to the, the Scriptures and said, yep, this is, this is what we get. Um, so, do you remember there's a line in the Nicene Creed that says, um, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's in the Apostles' Creed, that much. And then it goes on to say, and his kingdom will have no end. That's put in there specifically to refute a belief in a literal thousand-year reign. Okay? Because, here's some other interpretations. Augustine will come along after Nicaea, based his interpretation on Matthew 12, verses 22 to 29 where it talks about Jesus talks, tells the parable of binding the strong man. Okay, He tells you if you must bind the strong man if you want to plunder his house. So he sees Satan as the strong man and Jesus as the one binding him and the thousand years begins with Christ's earthly ministry. So he interpreted the binding of Satan for a thousand years. That starts with Jesus' earthly reign or maybe his resurrection you see that. So, um, I always, people always will say, do you believe we're in the end of days? And I say, absolutely. It started the day Jesus rose from the dead. We're in the, we're the end times now. We don't know how long the end times lasts. <laughs> um, uh, evil's bound, but it's not yet gone. And that's why Augustine comes up with that interpretation. Um, so he sees the thousand years as going on right now while we're alive. So he sees it as a symbolic thousand years that's happening. We're in the middle of it. Because uh, Satan isn't yet destroyed at this point. He's put away and Jesus is reigning. So he essentially sees this as the era of the church. The era when the church is here proclaiming Christ. Um, and so Christ is reigning on earth in a sense through his church, through the proclamation of the word and through the administration of the sacraments. Um, in the end, what they discovered, and the reason why they did what they did at Nicaea, was that the only people who believed in it being a literal thousand years were all limited to this little area over here. Everyone else, based on the teachings of Jesus, apart from the book of Revelation, okay, which is after Jesus' earthly life, they don't remember Jesus ever saying, I'll come back, then I'll go away, then I'll come back again, and that time I'll stay. It's always, I'll come back one time. <laughs> So that's why they come to the conclusion that the thousand years is, is to be interpreted symbolically rather than literally. Does that make sense? I'm just, I'm just, sharing, with you what, I'm just sharing with you where it comes from. Um, it's, called the interpret, it's called the heresy of either millennialism, if you tend to end towards the uh, 
towards Latin or chiliasm if you tend towards Greek. Um, here she comes. I said, I said, there are a lot of kids still over there. I wasn't sure we'd see you tonight. Um, the, those who do interpret the, the thousand years in a literal way, um, to, to this day, tend to interpret it as a period of fleshly decadence. Um, and so, depending, it's, it's had more traction at different times in church history, as, especially when a culture tends to be in sort of moral collapse. People get, get more upset about things, and so they start interpreting um, the thousand years as being uh, more literal. It tends to be more popular. Then when things are more stable, it tends, that interpretation tends to be less popular. Um, it was rejected, though, because it wasn't taught everywhere in the church, the literal thousand years. Um, and uh, of course, the, what's called the Vincentian Canon is by Vincent of Leon, which would be over to the east here in France. Um, he, uh, what was what was Gaul then? Um, he would he he said, look, we have to go with what was believed everywhere by everyone at all times. That's that's the, the that's the standard, and that standard is used to decide what's included in the New Testament and what's taught in the Nicene Creed. Okay, so that becomes the standard. So they compare the memories of the church everywhere because it was taught by the apostles everywhere. And they come together, all right? So, um, here's another thing I would add to that, that bit of history. So I want to give you that history. Up to this point, have the numbers in the book of Revelation largely been symbolic or literal? So... Mostly symbolic, right? Because you go to the 144,000 at the beginning. Does that mean only 144,000 Jewish people are going to be saved at the end of time? No. I mean, clearly it's meant to refer to the perfection, the fullness of all 12 tribes. The Gentiles are now included in the 12 tribes through the confession of Christ. So it's a symbolic number. Um, or as are numbers like the number of the beast being 666 and all that kind of stuff. So we have all these these symbolic things. Um and uh, where's if we're doing with if we're doing literal with this, where's the great abyss? Um, if it's not a literal geographic location, I would argue that the numbers probably aren't real either. Because um, there, we have other literal places in here, like the Hill of Megiddo, right? Armageddon. That was in our last chapter. That's a literal place. You can go to the Hill of Megiddo today, okay? But this place doesn't seem to be a, referencing a literal place. Um, in other words, if this this is just my this is my approach to it. If I can't find the place that's being referred to here in this this section of text on a map, should I look for the numbers to fit on a calendar? Now, that may or may not be good reasoning, um, but it it does underwrite what the church decided uh, back at the Council of Nicaea. Um, as for what a thousand years might symbolically imply, um, seven mystically implies universality, and so a thousand implies perfection, whether in good or evil. Okay, so a thousand symbolizes that the world is perfectly um, leavened or pervaded by the divine um, during this period. Um, and since a thousand is ten, the number of the world raised to the third power, three being the number of God, it's all this kind of stuff. There's different ways you could come at the thousand being its symbolic reference. But of course we have twelve thousand, thousand being the number for perfection. You get twelve thousand from the twelve tribes of Israel. And so it, you, it, this seems to make some sense. It's a perfect reign of God, um, even if it's an incomplete reign because Satan is not finally cast out yet. He's bound but not destroyed. So... Um, now we're going to see him get destroyed. He'd like to pick up at verse 7. 
When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, Mm -hmm. to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, yeah, let's stop there. Mm. Okay, so um, we see the thousand years, Satan will be released from prison. He comes to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth. Okay. Okay, we're going to see Satan thrown into the lake here. Um, So Gog and Magog. My notes seem to be a little incomplete here. I apologize. Oh, here we go. My apologies. Okay. Gog and Magog are from Ezekiel, the 38th chapter. Um... Uh, through halfway through 39 or so. Gog is the head of land, and Magog refers to the people of the land. Um, so the whole land north of the people of God, of, of Israel. Okay. So in this context, it makes sense to say Gog and Magog, they were the ones in charge of, well, Gog was the king and Magog was the people of the land that was outside of the Holy Land. So in this case, since we're talking about the beloved city, which becomes symbolic of the kingdom, this is those outside the kingdom. Okay, so um, Satan gathers them all together to make war one final time, uh, but this time, um, crunch. <laughs> uh, you know, they just, they're just kind of wiped out. Um, <clears throat> It's interesting, what you have is even after his long period of confinement, which could be interpreted as God being merciful um, to his former head angel, um, even then he's just unrepentant. And um, So where, where do Gog and Magog come from? Uh, I can just say that as long as Satan's around, he'll find people to deceive, and apparently that's what he does. He finds a few more people to bring in and deceive. Um, <clears throat> so, Here's the point of that. Even after reigning for a thousand years with Christ, the saints have no security apart from God. And that's an important thing for us to remember. People feel like, we'll lean on God for as long as we have to, and after that I won't lean on Him anymore. We always lean on Him. That was my sermon last night. Um, it's always meant, we're, we're always meant to have a living relationship with God, and so we rely on that relationship. Um, and this is really God bringing the evil to a final end. Okay? They've given it every, every possible chance throughout this book, um, throughout the whole of Scripture. God has given um, those who do evil a chance to repent. Um, like Cain does, right at the beginning of Genesis. Um, and, and yet, those who won't repent, this is the final saying, okay, you can't damage anyone else. You can't hurt anyone else, including yourself. It's over. Okay? <clears throat> Okay. Who would like to pick us up at 11? 11. 11.
Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so we have two books opened here, okay? Let's see if I've got a good graphic. Nope. I might have a good graphic for the thrones. Okay. So Satan's the first one to go in the lake of fire. Um, the dragon. Um, what we have here uh, is there's a book of life, which is, in, is noted in distinction from the other books. The other books are what they have done, right? Well, what's the main thing we've done or not done? What, what's what's going to get you included in the book of life? We're told all the way back at the beginning during the letters to the seven churches. We're told that to those who overcome, the second death will have no, no power over them, if you remember that. Their name will be written in the book of life. Um, well, and, and the, the focus that many people have misplaced here is they, they start getting fixated on what have I done, what have I done, what have I done, I've got to add up my good deeds. What, what puts your name in the book of life is faith in Christ. The other books are all the other stuff you've done. And that's true. But it's not what's written in those other books that gets us where we're going. If you read here, it says that um, they're judged according to what they had done. But finally it comes down to if anyone's name was not found in the book of life. It's our faith in God through Jesus Christ. Um, the book of life contains the names of all those redeemed. Basically those who have a place in the eternal city. And the city, I guess, again, is a symbol for the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? Um, uh, back all the way back in chapter 3 verse 5 God says he will not blot out names from the book of life um, it doesn't, doesn't say you can get your name in there it just says God's won't, God won't take your name out <laughs> Okay, um, how do you get in there? by divine election and faith Okay, so chapters, if you go back to chapter 13, verse 8, and chapter 17, verse 8, it says those names were written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So God is the one acting, not us. Okay, God, uh, your name is in the book of life just like everything else by sheer grace, not because you've earned a place. Um, Christ earns your place for you. So, um, I, to my mind, and the, as, I, as I read these passages, and this is my fourth time teaching this class, um, the book of life doesn't give a solid answer to who is saved. It's the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Okay, so Christ is the author of this book. If you want to say it this way, it's written in the ink of his own blood. Okay. Um, this, this language of the book of life tells me who is the author of salvation. The one who died for folk of every tribe and tongue and nation, we're told earlier in the book of Revelation. 
So, like Genesis's creation story, which doesn't tell us a lot about how God created the world, if you think about it, it really doesn't. Especially if you compare it to other ancient creation stories. If you like, you know, my favorite, my favorite ancient creation story is the Babylonians, who were the next door neighbors to the Israelites. Um, their ancient creation story was that the, the dragon Tiamat vomited up the earth. That's my favorite one. Uh, <laughs> um, the Greeks had the demiurge, or the, uh, and then the, the, uh, the the heresy called Gnosticism picked that that idea up that that you know it was the good God had a rebel son who created the earth because God a good God wouldn't make stuff like flesh you know of course that's the opposite of what Jews believed um, but when you think about the book of Genesis how does it say God created He spoke and it was yeah it doesn't there's no how to it it doesn't it doesn't tell me the the how it works you know so like uh, I'm trying to remember all my, all my mythologies now. It's been so long since I was into all that. So my daughter should probably come in here and she could do that part from all the Rick Reardon books. But um, the uh, you know I, I remember I do remember that Athena is like springs forth from from Jupiter's kneecap or something strange like that. You know I mean there's all these weird creation stories, um, but. Uh, this this particular one, the book of Genesis doesn't really tell us how God creates; it just tells us who is the creator. It points us to back to Yahweh, and this same way, this language of the book of life tells us who is the author of our salvation. It's the one who wrote the book. Okay, it's the one who wrote the book, um, and. And I think this reinforces, for me at least, the Lutheran perspective on election. There's a really strong emphasis here on election. But I, I have a good friend who's a, a Calvinist, and we have a lot of disputes about this. Because Calvinism is, is um, there's a five-point mark. They, they teach Calvinism through five points. It's called, the, the acronym is TULIP. But, um, you know, total depravity, unlimited atonement, or unlimited grace, limited atonement, I don't remember which I is, and P is the uh, perseverance of the saints, I believe. I'm not a Calvinist, so I may have screwed that up. So if anyone's listening to this podcast, they can write it in the notes and tell me where I was wrong. And the, the little response is down below. But um, the uh, but peace means perseverance of the saints. What it means is that if God elects you, you can't do anything about it. Like, you're going to heaven whether you're a son of a... Or not, okay. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, there was actually a wonderful Scottish author named James Hogg who wrote a book called Confessions of a Justified Sinner. <laughs> who the guy goes around and finds out that this whole ter- town of Puritan elect are all grotesquely uh, behaving behind closed doors. You know, um, so. Uh, Bottom line is that that's kind of the opposite of what Lutherans believe. We have a strong view of election. We agree with the Calvinists there. God must call you to salvation. Absolutely. Uh, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to even come to faith. So faith isn't something you gin up on your side. God gives you that gift. But unlike Calvinists, we would say you can take the gift you've been given and throw it away. So that makes the warnings of this book make more sense to me. Um, don't don't write yourself out of the book of life when you've been written in. Don't do that to yourself. Don't let your name get blotted out. Okay? Um, but and I, and Calvinists will see that as a, like a punching God in the nose because he's not in, in charge anymore. But um, my perspective on that and perspective of other Lutherans uh, would be uh, that a king can be so powerful he can delegate his his authority. 
Kings do that all the time. If God chooses to give us enough free will to walk away from Him, that only not makes sense from a standpoint of love, because you can't compel love. We're supposed to love the God, love our Lord, not just not just serve Him, not just obey Him. You can a Muslim cannot love God and be a perfectly good Muslim. He, he can think of God as a son of a gun and and do everything he's supposed to do and be a perfectly obedient Muslim. Only Sufis are obsessed with loving God. That's because they were influenced by Christians. Um, <laughs> but the Shiites and the Sunnis uh, don't have that issue. Um, it doesn't matter whether you love God, you're just supposed to obey Him. That's what Islam means. It means submission. So you submit to the will of God. Um, but... Uh, Lutherans and other Christians who believe that you can that you can lose your salvation would say, "No, God allows us to walk away because otherwise, how can we choose to stay? How can we choose to love? Um, how can we how can we do that?" And just just in our experience, I can't I can't imagine love being a compelled thing. Like I have to love someone. Um, so, um, to me, this chapter helps make sense of other themes throughout Scripture. Uh, regarding our salvation, so um, the book of deeds is about human accountability, though. Okay, and um, people are judged by what they do, but they're saved by what God does. Does that make sense? You're you're judged by what you do, but you're saved by what God does. Okay, because none of our judgments are going to add up to a hill of beans when it comes to salvation. I mean, you know, here's here's my good pile, here's my bad pile. But if there's anything at all in the bad pile, then my being in God's presence will destroy me. It's not going to work. We need God to save us and get rid of that bad pile for us. Um, because God and sin don't exist in the same space. And what, what heaven is going to be about, as we're going to see, as we go into these last two chapters, is perfect communion with God. Okay? So, Lat said, who would like to pick us up as we head into 21? Okay. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Okay. Okay. So, here we. Uh, this is a really fanciful version of the. Uh, the you see a, a sort of heavenly Jerusalem coming down to replace the earthly Jerusalem. Um, How can you possibly imagine what that's like? 
I, that's, why, that's why I said it's kind of like a really fanciful. Somebody, somebody with a, a decent computer graphics card you know, came up with this one. <laughs> um, yeah, how do you imagine that? Um, because this is, this is a new heaven and a new earth. Um, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. So um, I think the person who actually has done the best job of this in his children's literature, not in his adult literature, was C.S. Lewis. Um, uh, I encourage you if you ever have, if you have children to read to or grandchildren if you read at the local library for kids um, or if you just want to read it for fun yourself because it's a quick and easy book if you're an adult is called The Last Battle um, it's the last in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series The Chronicles of Narnia and um, it's a beautiful a really beautiful um, attempt in prose to picture what the new heavens and the new earth might be like to be within them. And he does it by not trying to paint it too vividly. Um, he does it by, you know, it's, he, they keep describing it as being just like the world we knew, only more so. It's just like the things we loved, only more so. Um, and so, um, there's, you know, the, 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 way, the things we love about this earth, but without any of the negative attached to it. Um, if you can imagine that, you know, the, the way I heard somebody say it, it's, it's like, you know, it's, uh, in my case, my mother without her drinking problem, you know. <laughs> um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the, the thing you loved without the imperfections that marred it. Um, or maybe the imperfections that marred you and kept you from experiencing the fullness of the joy that that experience could have given. Um, and so I think it's just a beautiful uh, way to approach this. But let's look at um, this language of he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is direct language from the prophet Isaiah. I read this at nearly every funeral. Um, the, the Lord will make on that mountain a feast of fat things for his people and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know. Um, Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Evil was destroyed back in uh, verses uh, 7 through 10. So here we go. And the one seated on the throne, of course, Jesus. Behold, I am making all things new. One of my favorite moments. Any of you see the Passion of the Christ when it came out, whatever that was, 10 years ago, or whatever that was? Yeah, I'm actually thinking that well, we're doing we're doing Luther this month for dinner and a movie, but maybe in Lent we ought to do the Passion of the Christ. I I, I the year it came out was released in DVD. You could get permission to play it at churches for free, um, and so we did a ecumenical Bible study. Me and like the other five local pastors, we did five weeks during Lent leading up to a, fu- a full viewing of the movie, where we did it in sections and explained the symbolism in the movie. But one of my favorite things in that movie is when Jesus is walking, carrying the cross uh, to, to his death, and he stumbles and falls, and Mary runs up to him, and he says, Look, Mom, I make all things new. It's just this beautiful lifting of this wonderful line out of Revelation and placing it there, um, where, of course, which is what made it, how he made all things new. Um, Alpha and Omega are the beginning in the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Okay, um, He's the beginning and the end, as he has said elsewhere in this book, the one who was and who is and who is to come. He's everywhere. You know, he's at both ends of the story already. <laughs> okay, um, And the way I... Uh, if you've never been down to Gettysburg, if you, if you ever go down there, I encourage you to go into the Cyclorama. Um, it was a very popular thing to do at the time. They would paint a painting in, in 360 degrees around you. 
So it's this wonderful painting of the of the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, at the time, he did it. Then, like three copies were made. And they used to tour around the world. Well, this is the one that survived, and it ended up back there. Um, so, when you see a painting, where do you sign a painting? Like Lower right hand corner, right? Where do you sign a three hundred and sixty degree painting? There, there's no end. There's no corner. What do you do? So, so what the painter did? He painted himself into the Battle of Gettysburg. He, he made himself a colonel or something like that and painted himself in by the one fancy. You know? Um, you know, this is what God does. God is the author of this whole story and he paints himself into the painting in the person of Jesus. Okay? Um, so, he, and he gives these lavish promises. Um, I am, it is done... Again, echoing those, those words from the cross, right? Usually it's translated, uh, it is finished, but it's the same phrase in Greek. It is finished. Um, I am the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now that language there is sonship language is inheritance language, okay? It doesn't mean, ladies, you need to be a man, okay? <laughs> it's referring to inheritance language there, all right? Um, so, uh, and again, the reminder, because now this is a message, ultimately. A message, by this point, the evil are already in the lake of fire, the judgment's already done. But Jesus throws in this reminder, because really this, this scrolls a message to the churches, okay? That language of um, overcome, or conquer, um, depending on your translation. Mine was conquer. Um, it's often listed as overcome. Um, it comes from earlier in the book where at the end of each letter to each church, he says, to the one who co-overcomes, I will give blank. Okay, so it's that echo again. Okay, so who'd like read it? Verse 9. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plates came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Can I go on? Sure. Mm -hmm. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, 
praise, mm -hmm. the eleventh jasuth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. Okay, so um, before we go on to the further description um, of the city, again, literal or, or symbolic, um, it looks like gold clear as glass. I've never seen clear gold. I've never seen clear gold in my life. <laughs> um, you know, this is, this is a person trying to describe something beyond description. But what he does do is draw on all the images of richness, um, that he has. Imagine, like most of us, most people in the world, I mean, Americans are wealthy compared to most of the world, but most people throughout most of history have, have lived in extreme poverty. Um, so you take all this stuff, which they may have seen once in their lifetime, when the king rode through their town and they, they ever saw like a belt buckle or something made out of gold. This is as much gold as most human beings will ever see in their life. And here the streets are made out of it. You know, I mean, you're imagining a place where it's clearly communicating there's no want here. Um, even the, the sizing of the place, uh, I mentioned, you guys know what a stadia is, right? If you imagine a, a stadium, right, so you stretch it out in length, um, that's a stadia. And so it's 12,000, well, we talked about that, you know, 12, and you get the number 1,000, and it's 1,000 is perfection. So, And it's, the city's interesting because it's as wide as it is long as it is high, so it's like a cube, you know, I mean, it's like, it's some, like something out of Star Trek, right? The Borg are coming or whatever. Uh, and, but, so it's meant to communicate the perfection of the world, okay? No matter where you go, it's beautifully perfect. And what's, what's amazing about this city is that if you think about the way a city is, is, is in the ancient world, what's the purpose of the city wall? Protection. Protection, right. How many gates does it have? This one does. One. A city has one gate. Why? Because you don't want to have to protect two sides at once. The walls protect you on every side. The only vulnerable spot is the gate. In this time, we have three gates pointing every direction. The city needs no protection. Huh? Welcoming people. Exactly. Exactly. The three open gates. Hey, sweet pea. The three open gates, just it, it, they're open all the time. They never close. <laughs> you know? There's nothing to protect yourself from anymore. There's no want. Everything is made out of riches. I love the old story of the guy who begs, you know, he goes to die and he begs death for, you know, he's lived his whole life trying to acquire gold and, you know, and he says, well, can I just take one bar with me? I've worked my whole life for this stuff. And he, he the the angel finally lets him and he goes to heaven and he shows up there and St. Peter looks at what he's carrying and he says, pavement? You came all this way and brought pavement? <laughs> um, you know, this is what it's supposed to communicate to us, that there's no want, there's no need for protection. Every, exactly, exactly. Um, and this, this wonderful radiance just seems to be communicating. If you've seen... Um, it's different for us living in the computer age where screens glow at us all the time. But, you know, prior to the, the invention of the incandescent bulb, the only time you saw things glow was when they reflected light. Or like a gemstone, refracted light. And so, um, and we're going to see the significance of the light as we enter the next section. So, starting at verse um, 22. Um, I'll read. 
And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So again, where are we? Um... You've heard about the glory of God, and that's always been associated in Jewish thought with light. Okay, um, and here we have everything sort of glowing of its own accord, for it's all of God. You know, God is the light. So I'm imagining it's always been one of those things. Um, what was the name of that one painter who's really popular for? I died just a few years ago. He would, um, <laughs> no, you would recognize this. Thank you, Kincaid. I don't like him either. But one of the things you notice about him, one of the things I don't like about him, there's no shadows. There's no shadows in his paintings because light comes from every direction. And so that's intentional. Um, I don't know, I don't particularly care for his style, but um, it's, it's, he was trying to be evocative of some, you know, ironic very peaceful world um, where there's no no darkness and no evil, so no conflict. Um, and of course, that's what you'd have if the light is everywhere. If there's no no source of light, no sun, no moon, no source of light at all, it, God is the source of the light. Um, and so, the, so here we come to this whole thing about judgment. The people, God's presence is inescapable in heaven. So this is the last place that someone who detests God wants to be. You know, um, this is why there can be no evil left in us when we show up there because there's no place to hide it. There's no place to. There's no way to be deceptive. God's light is everywhere, um, and so we need God to purge us and clean us, um, so we're ready for heaven. Are we at time wise? They don't need to come in yet. Let's finish the book. <laughs> Would someone else like to read? I, I took over there for a moment. Probably. Okay. 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 Uh, uh, 22. 22, but... First one. Oh, okay, okay, okay. The river of life. Then the angel showed me the river of wa- water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are not for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light or the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Okay, so before we go on here, if if your picture is clearly in your mind, you have one tree on both sides of the river. 
So it's almost like the river is flowing out of the center of the tree or through the center of the tree. Okay? Because it says the tree is on either side of the river. There's one tree. Now, cast your mind back to Genesis. They eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and they're cast out of the garden before they can eat of the tree of life. Okay? Because if they could eat of the tree of life, then they would be able to create evil forever and ever and their evil would have no end. If there's a virtue in this world, it's that even the most vicious dictators eventually die. Okay? Um, really, I mean, that's, that's the way the church fathers almost uniformly looked at God kicking us out of Eden was that it was a merciful act so we couldn't forever destroy our souls and the souls of those around us. Um, so, here you have the tree of life dead center. Welcome to the city. This is what you weren't allowed to eat before, but now you are. <laughs> okay? And there's this beautiful, perfect crop of fruit. Twelve different types of fruit so coming off of it, you know? I was like thinking of, wow. Do you like bananas? Do you like apples? What, what do you like, you know? <laughs> We're going to eat in heaven. Amen. And again... Ice cream, yes. There you go. All the things I can't have now. That's, I am going to Hey, you're right. That's I'm gonna wake up in heaven and say, "Give me the chocolate." <laughs> there you go. <laughs> exactly. And again, thinking that most of the world lives their life perpetually undernourished, what else would heaven be but a giant feast? You know, um, the wedding feast of the lamb is what we're at here. But especially interesting is that the 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 water, the river of life, flows out of the tree or through the center of the tree and out. Okay, I forget which church father it was. I'm going to say it was Philip of Mopsuestia, but I may be misremembering that. But there's this wonderful phrase where he says, you know, when, when, the, the, when the way was barred to the tree of life at the beginning, the tree of life sprouted up on the hill of Calvary. So the, the cross became the tree of life. And here we see the tree of life giving, giving out this, this living water. Well, Jesus, remember the, remember the woman at the well and Jesus says, saying to her, well, I'd give you a drink of living water if you want. You know? <laughs> so, again, this deep symbolism of, of, of Christ as well. Okay. Okay. Continue on. Verse 7. Jesus is coming. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of prophecy in his book, this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Mm-hmm. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong, uh, does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does rigid continue to be do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may may have the right to the, the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, 
those who practice magic arts, the sexuality, immortal, immoral, the, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehoods. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you the, this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life. And in the holy city, which are described in this book, he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Okay. So this is what they commonly call an epilogue. The story's over, and he's just adding the final comments and repeating a few important themes of the book for us. Um, you know, you get, we get some quotes from Jesus again. Behold, I'm coming soon. Things he's said before in the book. Um, Blessed are those who wash their robes. This is recalling to our mind those who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb back earlier in the book who had gathered around the altar. Um, And then the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. So who is the Bride? Did you figure that out as we went to see? Did you pick... Right, the people of God. The whole people of God, yeah. This is not an individualistic thing. So um, there were some weird things that started to occur in the Middle Ages where people, um, how do I say this, started marrying themselves to Jesus, like nuns would wear wedding rings and stuff like that. Uh, It's not individual soul to soul. The bride of Christ is the church, the gathered people. This is whom Jesus died for. This is whom Jesus presents to himself spotless and clean because he cleans her sins, meaning our sins, collectively. Um, So the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Well, who's the Bride? The Church. The Spirit's saying, come to Jesus. The the, the Church's one proclamation in every era is supposed to be, come to Jesus, (laughs) okay? Um, This is is the the way that it it ties together for us. Any questions? This kind of we've reached the culmination. This is the fun part. I love this. I said, don't go, don't go reading chapter eighteen for devotional material. But twenty and twenty-one and twenty-two are great. You know? <laughs> when you get discouraged, these are great parts of the Bible to turn to, um, because the you know because it speaks of, of the hope we have, um, even when things get really dark. Um, remember. Surely, says Jesus, I am coming soon. Um, never soon enough, but, um, but soon. We've covered an awful lot of ground. Any questions at this point? Not that you probably don't have a hundred questions, but anything that's burning right now you'd like to think about before we head out.
Come on in. Hey, good night, sweetie. See you home. Bye, Elizabeth. All right. Well, as burning questions occur to you over the coming weeks, feel free to grab my elbow and talk to me at church or give me a call. I always love to do that. So, um, but I hope you found this enriching. Um, and. Uh, as I said, I, I know that we're not going to have absolute clarity. We wish it would be like a textbook, um, but that's the nature of highly symbolic stuff. But what it reveals to us is that God wins, um, and it reveals to us that we have great hope in, in uh, staying with him through that victory, even when things are dark in our lives. Um, and, of course, and of course, there's the warning there to... Not fall off the wagon, for lack of a better word. <laughs> so, Don't change his word. Don't, Don't change his word, exactly. And of course, that refers primarily to this particular, whoops, this particular scroll. That was a good, thank you. That was a really good paperclip there. Um, but the, uh, but of course, I think also its place in the canon, that it falls at the end of the Bible, is, is, a, is a nice, convenient thing to, to remind us not to change any of the words of Scripture, which is why... Um, there's a hymnal that's come out in the last couple of years I won't have in this church because they don't like the they, they change the words of the book of Psalms because they didn't like it so um, so I, I can't abide by changing scripture so I was like I won't have that hymnal in my church <laughs> um, and um, we'll probably pick up having I'm going to take a little break here to at least till after Christmas but um, we'll probably pick up having another Bible study where we'll get into another book in the evening um, so if you have any votes of something you'd like to, to look at I started with Revelation because a lot of times people have questions about it and it's, an, it's a but there's far more practical books of the Bible to get into in terms of our lives and things like this um, so if there's anything you're interested in, in doing my favorite book to teach um, uh, well, my two favorite are Genesis and John. Um, so, I, especially Genesis. Genesis is just full of so many interesting stories. John, I love because of the beloved apostle, just wrote in a completely different style from the other gospel writers. And um, but there's really practical ones for our lives. Um, books like Philippians and First Thessalonians are very, very practical in terms of applying them to our life day to day and helping encourage us and empower us in our Christian walks. So. Well, thank you. Well, shall we close with a word of prayer? Gracious God, um, how blessed we are to hear the words of our salvation and the encouragement that comes from knowing that uh, whatever is going on in this world that may discourage us or in our lives, um, that may disempower us, that you will be the author of our salvation. You have accomplished all that is needful and that in you it is finished. Lord, strengthen us and bless us to follow faithfully after you. Um, Grant us to walk more faithfully in our day-to-day lives and show your love to the people around us um, and encourage them also. This and whatever else we need, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.